You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Scattered spider prompts warnings from CISA and the FBI. Phobos Ransomware is an affiliate crime-as-a-service program. A hack-for-hire contractor? Scamma in the C2C market. Our guest is Lee Clark from the RHI SAC with a look at holiday season cyber threat trends. Tim Eads from the Cyber Mentor Fund shares recent trends in cyber venture capital with tips on finding a good match. And the tempo of cyber operations in Russia's hybrid war. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Friday, November 17th, 2023. CISA and the FBI have issued a joint cybersecurity advisory outlining the activities of the Scattered Spider Cybercriminal Gang, The advisory states, Scattered Spider, also known as Star Fraud, Unk3944, Scatter Swine, and Muddled Libra, engages in data extortion and several other criminal activities. Scattered Spider threat actors are considered experts in social engineering and use multiple social engineering techniques, especially phishing, push bombing, and SIM swap attacks to obtain credentials, install remote access tools, and or bypass multi-factor authentication. The threat actor targets large companies and has been known to utilize the Black Cat Alpha ransomware alongside their usual TTPs. The joint advisory represents a call for information sharing as much as it does a warning against the activities of this particular threat group. Scattered Spider has taken an unusual interest in its victims' internal corporate communication channels, like Slack, Microsoft Teams, and Microsoft Exchange. They do so in order to monitor for signs that their activity has been detected or suspected, and the group has also shown a propensity to attempt to join conversations about remediation efforts. Reuters reported earlier this week that the FBI has, for several months, known the identities of about a dozen members of Scattered Spider, and some observers have wondered why the Bureau hasn't been more aggressive in making arrests. The FBI bridled at the criticism, CyberScoop reports, saying in a media call about the advisory, just because you don't see actions being taken, it doesn't mean there aren't actions being taken. So, as true believers say of Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. But in this case, the Bureau has a point. Not all law enforcement is immediately visible to the public. In any case, 
Good Hunting FBI. Cisco Talos has published a study of the Phobos ransomware affiliate program alongside an analysis of the ransomware itself. The researchers found five commonly used Phobos variants, E-King, 8, LB, Devos, and Faust. They are, for the most part, distributed to targets through the smoke loader Backdoor Trojan. The researchers explained why Phobos seems to be a criminal affiliate program, stating, There is some indication that Phobos may be a ransomware-as-a-service due to the variation in email addresses we observed. Each Phobos variant from VirusTotal was associated with at least a dozen emails that were provided to victims to maintain contact and some had close to 200 unique email addresses with various domains. In some instances, ICQ and Jabber were used as the main contact address. That shiftiness of email addresses is one mark of a ransomware-as-a-service operator. Cisco Talos says, While it's possible that there is a single group behind Phobos, it would be uncommon to have a threat actor change their contact email address so often, We assess that Phobos is likely closely managed by a central authority that controls the ransomware's private decryptor key. Reuters, working with researchers at Sentinel-1, has published a report on Appin, an Indian technology company that's allegedly offered hack-for-hire services for more than a decade. Shane Huntley, head of Google's Threat Analysis Group, told Reuters that hackers tied to Appin targeted tens of thousands of Gmail accounts. Huntley said, These groups worked very high volumes to the point that we actually had to expand our systems and procedures to work out how to track them. Sentinel-1 states, Appin is considered the original hack-for-hire company in India, offering an offensive security training program alongside covert hacking operations since at least 2009. Their past employees have since spread to form newer competitors and partners, evolving the Appen brand to include new names, while some have spread into cybersecurity defense industry vendors. Appen was so prolific that a surprising amount of current Indian APT activity still links back to the original Appen group of companies in one form or another. Campaigns conducted by Appen have revealed a noteworthy customer base of government organizations and private businesses spread globally. It's worth noting that reports don't characterize Appen as a criminal organization. It's more like a training, testing, and lawful intercept shop. As the case of NSO Group and others like it have shown, the customers can be, to say the least, problematic with respect to malware proliferation. Researchers at VADE describe the underground market for sophisticated phishing kits, or SCAMA, Crooks can now use tools to scan phishing kits for malicious code. Bade states, Scamma sellers often attempt to exploit customers by embedding malicious code in their packs. Because of this common practice, tools like Res Stealer Finder have emerged to protect hackers and enable them to secure their phishing pages. Res Stealer Finder detects malicious content in web pages, scanning for vulnerable, sometimes obfuscated code and unknown links that may present in Scamma packs. The tool is effective at finding hidden code that a devious Scamma seller might use. And finally, Ukraine warns friendly nations to expect to receive Russia's unwelcome attentions in cyberspace. Viktor Zora, deputy chairman of Ukraine's State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection, told IrisCon this week 
that CERT-UA logged over 2,000 cyber incidents in the first 10 months of 2023, which represents no decline from the total tracked throughout 2022. The attack's principal goal this year has been espionage, some of it intended to collect for immediate tactical purposes. Closed-circuit video systems, for example, have been targeted with the aim of collecting information on the results of drone and missile strikes. The activity hasn't been entirely confined to cyber espionage. Attacks against operational technology systems have also been observed, with InDestroyer 2, InController, and Cosmic Energy deployed by the GRU against Ukrainian electrical power distribution systems. The Irish Times reports that Zora warned that other governments could expect similar attacks from Russia and from other authoritarian and outlaw regimes. He said, While cyber attacks have been often considered a weapon of the future until recently, experience of the ongoing war has clearly shown the whole world that the future has come. We can say for sure that cyberspace has become a real warfare domain. There are no boundaries that can stop cyber attackers. Zora urged that countries prepare themselves for a coming extension of cyber war, and the threat isn't exclusively Russia, either, in his view. He said, It's just a matter of time before other authoritarian regimes start their cyber wars against the West. It's crucial now for everyone to realize the degree of danger posed by the combined use of conventional and cyber warfare. Democracies should immediately adapt their military doctrines to address emerging cyberspace-based threats. Cyber attacks should be treated in the same manner as conventional military aggression and should result in a similar response. Russian operations against countries it considers unfriendly are no novelty. The GRU's Sandworm has been active against electrical power distribution systems in Denmark, and this is the sort of activity against which Zora warned Iris Khan. So, as CISA would say, shields up. Coming up after the break, Lee Clark from the RHISAC has a look at holiday season cyber threat trends. Tim Eads from the Cyber Mentor Fund shares recent trends in cyber venture capital with tips on finding a good match. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. 
IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Lee Clark is cyber threat intelligence writer and analyst at the Retail and Hospitality Information Sharing and Analysis Center, the RHISAC. They recently released findings from their 2023 holiday season cyber threat trends report, and I checked in with Lee Clark for the details. Cyber threat activity is top of mind for most of our member organizations during this time of year. Commonly known malware like LokiBot, QBot, and Emotet used to rank really high uh, in terms of what our members shared uh, as threatening their organizations. Those have virtually disappeared for the current season, right? Hmm. The other big divergence is in the past, we saw a lot of chatter about Log4j, right? But as organizations quickly moved to patch that, it's fallen off the list completely, right? Whereas it used to hold a very prominent spot. That, of course, has been overtaken by other critical vulnerabilities that have emerged over the course of the year, including MoveIt and Citrix Bleed, right? A couple of trends stay largely the same, right? Credential harvesting, phishing, imposter domains, and especially various types of fraud all remain consistent escalating threats to our membership during the holiday season. What are you tracking in terms of of trends? Do you have a a sense of, are are things improving or or getting worse or are we staying the same? Where, Where do we stand there? I don't know about a value judgment like better or worse, but I do know we're seeing changes over time, right? Mm. So we see prevalent malware like uh, QBot, Agent Tesla, Formbook, Emotet. We see those malware falling in prevalence of reporting over time, right? And what we see rise in that place are members tracking more on MITRE ATT&CK TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures, right? So we see that tracking coming in a lot more heavily, which suggests that our membership overall is improving their sophistication and being able to detect and mitigate these threats. Now, a couple of big changes that we don't quite have hard data yet on, so this is more qualitative than it is quantitative, is we see an explosion right now uh, in three key areas, right? The first being QR code phishing, the second being imposter domains, and the third being uh, extortion attacks. Uh, what used to be termed ransomware attacks, but uh, we're sort of moving away from calling them ransomware because they tend to be extortion-based attacks now instead of uh, encrypting attacks, right? Can we dig into to each of those individually? Why do you suppose that that those are uh, receiving the attention that they're getting from the bad actors? Sure. So QR code phishing 
is an easy way to trick victims into going outside of their organization's security architecture, right? If you send someone a phishing email with a QR code, they scan it with their personal cell phone, and it takes them to a fake login screen asking them for tool credentials, right? Uh, this is a great way to get around any internal security controls because you have now essentially tricked your target into using their personal device to enter professional credentials, right? So any security controls that the enterprise may have in place uh, aren't going to protect the individual's uh, personal phone, right? That's one reason we see this uh, blowing up uh, in terms of prevalence. The other side of this is that scam activity uh, overall is getting more sophisticated, more organized, and more aggressive. Uh, it's more professionalized, right, in terms of call centers and even pay schedules and benefits packages for, for <laughs> scam operators, right? Mm. If we move to imposter domains, we see imposter domains in two ways, right? The first imposter domains uh, are targeting enterprise employees. Um, it's sort of a sub, there's an overlap with QR code phishing in that we see imposter pages for major vendor software login. These typically are seeking to steal credentials, right? That's targeting the enterprise. The second type we see is actually targeting the guest or targeting the, the customer. And that's usually looking for payment data or loyalty points, things of that nature, right? Uh, we see that exploding in prevalence because, again, the, the professionalization and, and ease uh, of developing scam operations. But standing up that phony infrastructure is very low effort. And as any company that's ever tried to do a domain takedown on a typo squatting domain will tell you, it's not always the easiest thing to get taken down. There, there are uh, legal questions as well as uh, interpersonal politics between different organizations and telecommunications providers, right? Right. And the last one, even if Klopp hadn't uh, exploited the move-it vulnerability over the course of 2023 to carry out extortion attacks against however many, I think we're up to more than 700 organizations now, I'd still be reporting an explosion in extortion attacks targeting uh, the retail, hospitality, and travel sectors. Of course, we're not getting it as heavy as uh, sectors like healthcare or education are, but but we're getting our fair share still. It's a, it's a sort of global trend that, that we're no exception to. Tends towards extortion because encrypting requires additional time, effort, and resources on the part of attackers whenever you can move straight to the phase of pay me the money or I publish your data, right? Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's an easy attack to carry out once you get your initial access, which often you can purchase from an initial access broker instead of doing the initial compromise yourself, right? What are the take-homes for you in terms of the things that you hope people uh, get out of this report? Sure. So the key takeaways uh, we're hoping our, our members see is that communal defense, right, what we call protect as one as a, as a sort of slogan at the ISEC, uh, helps drastically in strengthening individual enterprises, right? Sharing security control recommendations as well as indicators, compromise, tactics, techniques, and procedures, anything technical, but as well as 
policy level recommendations in between these organizations that operate in similar spheres, it helps defense both at the community level and at the individual enterprise level, right? And these trends that we see changing and reporting in the threat landscape affect organizations uh, regardless of their specific niche in the market, right? Because these attacks tend to be opportunistic in nature. They're not targeting companies for the sake of targeting that specific company in most cases. So in engaging this kind of communal defense and staying aware of what these key changes are and implementing the mitigations that are recommended by our subject matter analysts who were so gracious with their time and effort to help us with the report. Uh, For this period uh, of the 2023 holiday season, which as every holiday season is is going to see a significant surge in threat activity, uh, this type of communal defense can really be a massive advantage for organizations. That's Lee Clark from the RHISAC. And joining me once again is Tim Eads. He is the co-founder of the Cyber Mentor Fund and also a serial entrepreneur in the cybersecurity space. Tim, always a pleasure to welcome you back. Dave, great to be here. Uh, I want to check in with you today on the state of VCs and, and where you see us heading when it comes to fundraising in the space. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting time to be fundraising uh, You know, over the last... Well, I guess the first year of the pandemic, everybody got high valuations, raised big funds, put, had to put the money to work. Valuations got out of whack. The correlation to revenue was really out of control. Then over the last year, everybody came out with seed deals and seed funding. Some VCs are not built for you know, engaging with the entrepreneurs as seed people. I think sometimes they, they think they can, but yeah, I think that's a... There's a DNA that seed funds are pretty good at seed funds and, and working with entrepreneurs. There's definitely a dynamic that, you know, first part of the pandemic, massive funds raised, massive valuations, massive money going around. Over the last 18 months, just about every fund in, in, in cyber started off with, I do more in seed, I do more in seed. But like I said, certain funds don't really have the dynamic or the ability to relate to entrepreneurs in in the same way. And I think when you're doing seed deals, you have to be really operationally focused to help the entrepreneur because, you know, particularly the first time once, you know, it's, it's a struggle, right? It's a lonely job. It's, it's a really hard job and you need somebody that is, you know, we talk about all the time is shoulder to shoulder with you, helping you do it, helping you with things like comp plans and, or even right off the bat, like, you know, EIN numbers. So you can actually trade in California or, getting a general counsel, working with building a financial model. These kind of like early stage stuff, some funds are not built for. And sometimes I think there's a missed opportunity that, you know, for the entrepreneurs, because they got to be careful who they partner up with. Because, you know, you're getting married, right? You're getting married for a long time. What sort of questions should an entrepreneur be asking of their potential investors here to make sure it's a good match? Here's what I would ask. I mean, in no particular order, but I'll give you my top three or four. I would absolutely do references, right? Um, and see, you know, where, you know, 
what worked and what didn't work in the person in the past. In the questions that I would ask is what, as a subplot to that one, is what do they take outside the boardroom and what do they keep inside the boardroom? Do they know what to take offline and when to take it offline? Do, do, does the board member come to the board meeting with the last board deck and conscious of the last board meeting and what you said you were going to do? Corey Malloy is one of the best uh, investors in Silicon Valley, and he always did that for me. And he would turn up at the last, you know, with the current board meeting with the last couple of board decks to try and keep you honest on the current one. So, what to take offline, what not to do. So, references, but ask about questions like online, offline, how uh, involved are they in the board meetings, how involved are in the previous board decks they bring into it, things like questions around that. How they engage with you outside the board meeting? Do they come see you? Do you go walk, see them? Do you have walk and talk meetings? You know, how do you get along with them outside of the meeting? And how coachable are them? Pete Sinclair is an old friend of mine, and he and I was on my board at Silvertel, my second company, and we would walk all the time, all the time, and around and around in Menlo Park. But so that you know, so that would be another one. References to, you know, obviously like that. Go back in time see, and understand the domain expertise. So the second one will be domain expertise. It, do they know cyber in, in my case? Or, you know, how deep do they know cyber? Are they on the technical side, on the good market side? Do they have history? Do they have a Rolodex? Do they, you know, do they really know the subject matter or are they just skimming the tops of the waves? If they're skimming the tops of the waves, I, I would probably avoid it just simply because there's going to be a time where you need to, that you want to have a conversation about the market and the market dynamics and market transitions. And there's too much of an uphill battle to try and educate that. The third one would be fund dynamics. What fund are they on? Are they in the first fund? How far through are they through that fund? One of the things that entrepreneurs don't do enough of is ask about where they are in that fund. Let me give you an example. Let's say they're on fund two, and it's a $200 million fund, but they've already invested 130 or 140 million of it. You gotta be careful because the fund dynamics will start impacting their investment decisions on follow-ons and reserves, particularly if you take it all the way to the top. You say, hey, I'm at 170 of 200 million fund. You, you don't really wanna be my advice, and you know, I'm sure people will call me out on it. You don't really wanna be the last deal in a fund. You would rather be the first five or six deals in a fund at the front end of it. Just because you have a whole length of time of investment, there's a whole dynamic there. Hmm. Those would be my top three. Yeah. Do entrepreneurs sometimes make a mistake of, of thinking that the folks who are investing in them are, are going to have more available time than they actually do? Now, it's another great question. Man, you're on a roll. There's a great test for an entrepreneur on this stuff, right? Do they work at weekends? Can you get hold of them? When when can you get hold of them? Can you shoot them a text? Do they respond? A friend of mine raised a bunch of money recently, and they met an investor on a Friday, and they got the term sheet by like the uh, I think they got the term sheet on the Tuesday or the Wednesday. But they the the VC really played no huddle offense and and got in. But that's because that particular uh, venture capital person is a always available, always around kind of guy. And it's a great test, you know, as you go through the funding process, you know, and you're raising money or you're starting to engage in, you know, the Sandhill Shuffle or whatever you want to call it. Get to see them at weekends. Get to see them off out of hours and see what they're like, see how they interact with people. 
And they will see that on you too, because they need to see how your work ethic is and your your responsiveness and everything else. It's that's a good two way play. Yeah, I, I always say, uh, and this is certainly not an original thought on my part, but uh, you know, go out to dinner and see how they treat the wait staff. I did. I do that too. I went, um, when you when you're walking around Los Altos, which is where my office is. I want to see how they see the little old lady crossing the street, how they treat the wait staff. You know, do they make room for people? Are they understanding that? It's, I do that for people that I hire too. Let's go for a walk. Yeah. All right. Well, Tim Eads, thanks so much for sharing your insights. Great to be here, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Ashir Malhotra from Cisco Talos. We're discussing their research and findings on Kazakhstan-associated Eurotrooper disguises origin of attacks as Azerbaijan. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The CyberWire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.